2012 and 2018. Uh, but with last Sunday being the last Sunday of the year, and we had over the last several years used the last Sunday night of the year to reflect on God's goodness in the past year and to pray for the future year. And in the end, I was very glad that we did that. I thought that was a really sweet time together uh, last Sunday night. And so, so we're going to finish Romans 12 tonight, and then we will jump into Romans 13 with all of its interesting teaching about Christians and government and conscience and earthly powers and just so much interesting uh, material for us to be spending our time on uh, in the upcoming weeks on Sunday nights. But uh, let's finish Romans 12 tonight. And so look with me at verses 14 through 21. Verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now you'll remember... The flow of this chapter, Um, I'll just retrace it quickly in five statements. First, uh, God has shown us incredible mercy in Jesus Christ. That's Romans 1 through 11. Uh, That's where Romans 12 verse 1 picks up, right? Paul was asking, what now? In light of God's great mercy, in light of all that God has done for us as Christians, how now shall we live Second, uh, we see in this chapter that we are to respond to God's mercy with lives of sacrificial worship. This is how we honor and love and praise the God who saved us. We live unto Him. Uh, We live holy lives, trusting Him, walking in the path of blessing that He teaches us. Third, uh, we've seen in this chapter that the way we live unto God is by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. As Christians, we take our place at the feet of Christ, and He teaches us. And as we learn from Christ, we are changed. Fourth, this great change is first and foremost, at root, a change from pride to humility. As we learn from Jesus, as we take in all that he teaches us through the word of God, we're not just learning new information. We're seeing and savoring God in that truth. And that truth causes us to think higher thoughts of him, to stand in greater adoration of him, and to think lower thoughts of ourselves. The banner that Paul put over the Christian life way back in verse 3 was the banner of humility. And then fifth, in light of God's mercies, as we're to live unto God, worshiping Him, being changed and humbled by His Word, 
we saw that we are to find our place among God's people. And we are to love those people well. How do you live unto God? You get among His people and you serve His people. And you love His people. And you care for His people. And the bulk of Romans chapter 12 has been what does it look like to live as a Christian among the people of God. We saw that God has not saved us to send us out on solo missions for Him. He has saved us to bring us into a kingdom of people and a body of people who all learn together, serve together, and strive together to show God's glory in the world. Now, the final paragraph, as we have seen, has 17 commands. Boom, 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 boom. One right after the other. We saw that 10 of them had to do with how we respond to mistreatment. The other seven have to do with learning to live in harmony with one another. Uh, Last time we talked at length about what it means to live in harmony as a local church. Uh, We talked about the blessings of a people who serve Christ together in unity. Uh, Our individual personalities, our individual gifts mixing together into one glorious song of praise. It's not you by yourself and me by myself. It's each of us using our gifts together for the glory of God. Then we began looking at the commands that show us what this harmony in a local church is supposed to look like. We saw the command to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And the command to weep with those who are weeping. And we saw that we should do this because we truly are parts of one another. We're not just members of the same body. Earlier in this chapter, Paul said we are members of one another. So that your victories really are my victories and my sufferings really are your sufferings. And we saw how the sympathy that Christ has for us should overflow into heartfelt sympathy towards one another. There is another command here that helps us learn what it looks, what it looks like to live in harmony with one another. Uh, it's verse 18. Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So here is the attitude of the Christian. We are to be a people who strive for peace. A local church experiencing lasting seasons of harmony will always be made up of individual Christians intentionally striving to maintain peace. So are you a peacemaker? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons and daughters of God. That beatitude teaches us not just to be peaceful people. But rather, it teaches us that we are to take the steps necessary to bring peace when others are divided. Our command in Romans 12 here reflects that same idea. It's not just a command for us to be peaceful people. It's a command for us to take intentional steps to maintain peace when it is in danger and to take steps to restore peace when it is lost. And Christ promised that those who do this Those who live this way, they will be blessed. Makarios, uh, the gift of God's favor, uh, deep, uh, unshakable happiness. Uh, 
It's, it's a wonderful thing to be a peacemaker. The unshakably happy Christian is the one who loves peace, strives for peace, seeks after reconciliation whenever conflict arises without compromising the word of God. And the result isn't that we are sons and daughters of God. No, you're sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus. The result is that you're called sons and daughters of God. That's what Jesus said in that beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. In other words, how do people recognize you as God's children? What what sets you apart from your neighbors as one who's been bought by the blood of Christ? Well, this is a true mark of the children of God. Uh, Children reflect their parents. We as Christians are to reflect our God in the way we strive for peace. Our God made peace with us through Jesus Christ. Now we're to express our love and worship to him by living lives of peace and working for peace with others. And as we do that, other people will point at us and say, there goes a son of God. There goes a daughter of God. Now make sure you get this. Many Christians try to avoid any and all conflict in church because they're afraid it will hurt our witness for Jesus. We must not have any conflicts anywhere in the church. If there's any conflict anywhere in the church, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt our witness for Christ. So, so just if you see something that you might think should be addressed, you just don't address it. You see so-and-so beginning to live in an ungodly way, don't, don't approach them because that might create conflict. But the Bible seems to assume that if you're living the Christian life, conflict is unavoidable. You you can't keep conflict from happening. And the way we handle conflict can actually teach people wonderful truths about God. God is often more glorified in the way we react to conflict when we do so faithfully than he would be if we just kept trying to avoid it. How do you handle a disagreement? With others in this church? How do you respond when you've been intentionally or unintentionally slighted in some way? What's your knee jerk reaction when someone in this body suddenly speaks harshly to you or speaks in a, in a divisive way? The way you respond will affect all of us as a church. And if you respond in a way that works for peace, that is a gospel witness to this world. If you respond in a way that is humble, in a way that doesn't get all worked up, that doesn't demand your rights, it it, it shows that God has done a gracious work in you. Like Christ, we are to be willing to endure wrongs and to forgive those who hurt us and to continue showing the love of God. And only a miracle of the Holy Spirit can make us that kind of people. Uh, Churches are to be filled with those kinds of people. Churches are to be filled with miracle people, born-again people, spirit-working to make us peace-loving people. There's a definition of of a peacemaker that I think is excellent. Jonathan said he couldn't read the red, so I hope you can read it, but if not, I'll just read it aloud. A peacemaker is someone who experiences the peace of God, Philippians 4, 7, because he is at peace, Romans 5, 1, with the God of peace, Philippians 4, 9, 
through the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, who indeed is our peace, Ephesians 2, 14, and who therefore seeks to live at peace with others, Romans 12, 18, and proclaims the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 15, so that others might have joy and peace in believing, Romans 15, 13. In other words, peace is not just some small part of the Christian life. Peace with God is what makes us Christians. Peace with God is the amazing thing that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Yes, you have not going to hell, and that's a big deal. And yes, you have going to heaven, that's a big deal too. But none of that would matter if you didn't have peace with God. Peace with God. Having God reconciled to you, that is the great gift of salvation. And so at the rock bottom of who you are as a believer is you're a person who has experienced being given real, legal, absolute peace with God through Jesus Christ. And now we're to live in that peace. We're to rejoice in this reality. Whatever else is going on in my life, whatever else is going on in this world, things are right with me and God. And that matters more than anything. The Christian has communion with the God of peace. We rest in the one who is our prince of peace. Christ is is our peace. He's all that we need for for life and peace, both in, in this life and in the next. And it's because of this salvation, it's because we're living in the peace with God through Jesus that we're able to strive for peace with others, including one another in the local church. So if you want to grow as a peacemaker, here is the way to begin. Go deep in the gospel. Live more in the reality of how God has made peace with you. Draw near to the Prince of Peace and learn from him. Watch Jesus in the gospels. See how he interacts with folks. Pray for him to help you be more like him. But I do love the fact that Paul speaks very realistically in our verse. Two qualifiers. And the first is, if possible. If possible. Implication, Mount Hermon, there are times when making peace with someone would be sin. There are times when it is impossible to both honor God and be at peace with someone. The Bible recognizes that there are some things more important than peace. Or perhaps to put it better, the Bible recognizes that there is a kind of peace that is a false peace. And we are to have nothing to do with that. Uh, imagine a local church where everyone in the church is getting along fine. Everybody seems to be on the same page. Everybody is together. But that church is not teaching a true gospel. People are not being fed the true word of God. People are not being saved. Faith is not being strengthened. The great commission is not being fulfilled. But the people are at peace. That kind of peace is useless. It does not honor God. It's of no value whatsoever. Think about the man in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Remember that guy, 1 Corinthians And how did Paul respond? He he did not say, well, for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity in the church, you just let him do what he wants to do. Don't, Don't say anything now. No. 
Paul said that man's sin affects the whole body. That man's refusal to repent is like a cancer that will spread through the body. Making peace with that unrepentant man would lead to the death of the church. And so what did Paul say? He said you need to put that man aside. Put him out of the church. Mount Hermon, anytime someone starts teaching a false gospel... Anytime someone starts teaching a message of salvation and that is taught in Scripture, we are not to say, well, for the sake of peace, let him preach what he's going to preach. And the Bible is clear that we are to practice church discipline, that we are to actively maintain purity in our doctrine, and that all of these are aspects of true love. There are times when love demands that you not make peace with someone. Just as God is never at peace with the unrepentant sinner who continues to live in rebellion against him. There's no peace there for the unrepentant sinner. Paul also adds, so far as it depends on you. That's very helpful, is it not? Um, I cannot control what you think or feel or do. And you can't control what I think or feel or do. The only person in the world that I can control is me. And the only person in the world that you can control is you. The Christian is to relate to others with this attitude. Even if you hate me, I will still love you. Even if you try and stir up strife and bitterness, I'm going to still seek to treat you with kindness and with care. If someone is determined not to be at peace with you, that's out of your hands. You can't force people to be truly at peace with you. But you can make sure that on your part, so far as it depends on you, peace is always a possibility. That if that other person will have it, and have it in the right way, you are ready to make peace. This is the attitude of God. God is not at peace with anyone living in sinful rebellion against him. But he's always ready to make peace with that person if that person will only turn. If that person will only humble themselves and repent. Peace is there waiting. God gave his own son to make peace with sinners. If any person no matter how wicked or how vile, will genuinely come to God and acknowledge their sins and seek peace, they can have it through Christ. Our God is eager for peace. And like our God, we ought to be eager for peace. As far as it depends on us, we're always ready to pursue it. Well, finally, we end our study of this chapter by noting a theme that has come up again and again. It's the great enemy to harmony in a local church. And it is the enemy of pride. We see this enemy in three consecutive commands in verse 16. Verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Mount Hermon, let us never be haughty. That word means to be high-minded. To be haughty is this feeling, this sense about yourself that you are superior to the people around you. You might say you look down on others from your high horse. 
You, there, there's sort of a, an inward sense of where you're thankful that I'm not like so and so. I'm not like that person. Uh, the haughty people, their lives, their issues are considered more important than, than the lives and issues of everyone else around them. To be haughty is to be self-important. While everything else around you and the needs of others are less important. Uh, one way that this might show itself in a local church is in an unwillingness to spend time with others. And so Paul commands the church in Rome. He says, associate with the lowly. And by the way, if you're high-minded and you look down on everyone else, that means everyone else associate with them. Because they're all lowly in your mind. Uh, I wonder, are there people in this church that you don't make time for? That you don't ever spend time with? You, you keep them on the periphery of your life. And, and if you're bluntly honest, you might say, I, I just am not concerned with them. They don't matter to me. That's haughtiness. That's pride. Here is a cure for that. Associate with the lowly. Intentionally strive to spend time with those who seem unimportant in the world's eyes. And unimportant in your own eyes. When God unites your heart to the hearts of those around you, you will begin to see them differently. You'll begin to see them rightly. Uh, it is those whom the world discounts as poor fools who are often the most rich in love and kindness and patience. Uh, some of us were talking about this recently. Have you ever been around somebody with Down syndrome? Um, the world says their lives don't matter. Parents are more often now encouraged to abort babies when they get the diagnosis that the baby will have Down syndrome. And yet, have you ever been around a child with Down syndrome? They are so happy. They are often overflowing with joy, and they're some of the gentlest souls on earth. Our world values money. Our world values power. Our world values ambition. None of that fits with someone with Down syndrome. But God values something else. How many there are who are lauded in this world who will find themselves lost forever on the last day. While men and women that this world regards as not worthy of the oxygen that they breathe, they will be crowned in glory and honor on the last day. Paul was writing to Christians in Rome, the imperial city. Uh, more than most, these Christians were probably tempted to pay attention to those in their local church who were rich and powerful. Pomp, splendor, they were pervasive in Rome. And we do know that there were some people of importance, some Roman officials in the church of Rome. Imagine going to church with a senator and going to church with the, with the CEO of some major company. This is what it was for the Christians in Rome. And so it was very easy to get sucked into partiality, giving your attention, giving your, your honor to the senator, giving your attention to the CEO and ignoring the, the Roman slaves who were also members of the church. And we do know there were slaves in the Roman church as well. The Bible teaches us that in Christ, we are all one. 
Rich or poor, powerful or weak, slave or free, before God we are equals in the gospel. All deserving of hell, all saved by the same grace of God in Christ. If we are to put one above the other, it ought to be in matters of grace, not in matters of riches or power. And as Matthew Henry says, we should value grace in rags as well as in scarlet. If there's a Roman slave that owns nothing, but he's been a humble, faithful, godly follower of Christ for many years, and there's a Roman citizen full of riches and power, but has much to learn in the ways of Christ, which should you have gone to for counsel? Whose advice should you seek? Uh, If deacons are needed, who should be looked to for the office of deacon? If the Roman slave is gifted at teaching and pastors are needed, is there any reason why the slave should not be made an elder and overseer in the church over maybe the Roman governor who's also a member of the church? And the church of Christ, slaves are often qualified and appointed to be elders and pastors and deacons while men of great wealth and power sat under their teaching under their oversight. You see, we desperately need to see as God sees, and we need to value what God values. Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. If you think you are wise, you won't lean on your brothers and sisters. The more self-sufficient you think you are, the less you will value the people God has given to you and put around you in the local church. It's only when we are small in our own sight, it's only when we know our need of good counsel and help that we will be more and more thankful for the brothers and sisters God has put around us. Besides, when you are wise in your own sight... You're basically inviting God to send you the kinds of trials that will help you learn your lack of wisdom. Any child of God who thinks they are wise should expect to be shown differently by God. God wants to teach us to lean on Him for wisdom. And so as soon as we get haughty, He will come up with trials. If, he's, if we're His, the good Father disciplines His children, He will come up with trials to put us on our backs. You want a sure way to suffer in 2019? You want a sure way to invite some difficult trials into your life? Walk in pride and haughtiness and self-sufficiency. It's an open invitation saying, God, I need to be taught true humility. Often God gives us what we need through the people he's placed around us in our local church. Well, now comes the most important part of the sermon. You see, everything that we've learned in Romans 12, the study of the whole chapter, stands or falls on whether or not we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. If you have peace with God, then out of that relationship can flow every example of godliness described in this chapter. But if you do not have peace with God and your sins are still around your neck, this chapter is nothing but more law to condemn you. 
Romans 5.1, the heart of the book of Romans, the heart of Christianity. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before you can have peace with one another, before you can have a sense of peace that that saturates your life, you must have actual peace with God. And according to Paul, that only comes by faith. G.I. Packer said, the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a world on its shoulders. The entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. The doctrines of election, of effectual calling, regeneration, repentance, adoption, prayer of the church, the ministry, the sacraments, they all have to be interpreted and understood in the light of justification by faith. The Bible teaches that God elected men in eternity in order that in due time they might be justified through faith in Christ. He renews their hearts under the word. He draws them to Christ by effectual calling in order that he might justify them upon believing. Their adoption as God's sons is consequent on their justification. Their practice of prayer, daily repentance, good works, the whole life of faith springs from the knowledge of God's justifying grace. The church is to be thought of as the congregation of the faithful, the fellowship of justified sinners, and the preaching of the word and ministry of the sacraments are to be understood as a means of grace only in the sense that they are means through which God works the new birth and the growth of justifying faith. We remember from our study of the Reformation and Martin Luther uh, that he famously said that the doctrine of justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And it is the doctrine on which you stand or fall. Is there anyone here this evening that does not have peace with God? And do you want it? And do you want to be reconciled to God? Um, John Bunyan I'm going to end our study of this chapter by remembering his story. Uh, John Bunyan had been a notoriously wicked man. uh, A man widely known for his wickedness. John Bunyan had a reputation for wickedness. You know in your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, there are certain people that just have that kind of a reputation. There are certain men, that's a coarse man. You know the kind of language that comes out of his mouth, the kinds of jokes that he tells. The way he acts around people. That was John Bunyan. When he got married, uh, his wife had brought with her into the marriage a couple of godly books. And Bunyan one day picked one of them up and began to read. And it, it began to affect him. Just a little. But enough that it made him do something he hadn't done in a long time. He decided to attend church. And he listened to preaching. Well, this awakened his conscience, and his conscience became full of of agony and and fear because he knew what kind of a man he had been his whole life. And it was his conviction that God was too holy to make peace with a sinner like him. He believed, um, maybe as William Cooper would say later, God can make peace with every other sinner in the world, but God can't make peace with me. I am too bad. I am too far gone. And then John Bunyan tells what happens. Here's what he says. But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, 
fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And and I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. And there, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for it was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Yes, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he's saying God doesn't look at Justin Nail up from heaven and say, ooh, Justin lacks the righteousness I require. No, because Jesus stands right there as my righteousness. And he doesn't look at me one day and say, oh, Justin's having a bad day. He didn't pray very long. He didn't read his Bible. Oh, he said that coarse word. Therefore, he's, he loses some of No, no, no. My righteousness is Jesus Christ standing right there before God. And if I feed the poor, if I give an extra large offering to the church, if I, if I speak a particular word of kindness to someone who's being evil to me, I haven't increased my righteousness in heaven. For Jesus is my righteousness. Peace with God comes not by our works. Peace with God does not come by how we are feeling day to day. Our peace with God rests in Jesus Christ as we rest in him. And so I love this quote from Bunyan. Just listen carefully to this. He says, I remember that one day. As I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart, I was considering the enmity that was in me to God. And then that scripture came into my mind. He has made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see both again and again that day that God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through this blood. He said, that was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. Do you remember the days in your life when gospel truths dawned on you? And you began to understand who you are as a Christian. Yes, we are to pursue peace together as a church. Yes, we are to live together in harmony, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. But it is not to be about something that we're doing to earn the righteousness of God. Rather, it is the overflow of the fact that we already have righteousness in Jesus Christ. That everything necessary for us to have peace with God has been done. And that peace is there. It is certified. It is in the courts of heaven. And it cannot be revoked. There is awesome security when you know that you cannot lose your peace with God because your peace with God is in Christ. And it's only as we live in that peace that Romans 12 becomes possible. And so, even as we began saying, look at the mercy of God, how now shall we live? Well, we've seen the commands, we've seen the instructions, but you still got to go back to Romans 1 through 11. How now shall we live? In the gospel, in the good news of Jesus, in the good news of what he's done for you. And as you live in that, may the kind of life described in Romans 12 describe us as individuals and especially may it describe us as a church. 
Amen? Amen. So that's the chapter. Any questions about Romans 12?